We're going to just pick up and look at a few things. Really, uh, we've been studying the doctrine of eternal judgment, hell, the lake of fire, and so forth. And um, I just want to go in this morning and just kind of look at a couple, I call them concluding thoughts. Uh, we just scraped the surface. We were in the treetops on this doctrine. Uh, we did a little dive down last time when we looked at the the opening and the shaft and the ages to come and so forth. In time past, we saw that hell has, uh, is a generic term in the Old Testament of the place of the departed. And in hell, there were two compartments, the torment side, the lost torments side, and then the saved side, Abraham's bosom, paradise. We saw that in between the crucifixion of Christ and resurrection and the ascension, to roughly Acts 14-ish time frame, the paradise side was moved to the third heaven. And so then hell enlarged herself and has become just the place of the damned, the lost, those who have denied Christ. Then we looked last time at the age, out at the, the to come and how in the second coming, when the Lord returns, he sends that, that eternal, that flaming fire comes out before him and he literally scorches the earth in the Middle East over there and he opens that shaft up down at the bottom end of the south end of the Dead Sea in Bozrah and Idumea and he opens a shaft all the way down in so that the hell then is exposed and a memorial is set up for the attitude of God's wrath and, and, and his attitude against sin and this is what sin will get you because in the millennial kingdom Satan's bound for a thousand years. And the reason that Satan is bound is so that man understands that their problem wasn't the devil made me do it, which is what Eve said. Their problem is sin, and that they are sinners, and that their condition is, their nature is that of sin. And when he opens that and exposes it, we went over and looked in Isaiah 13 about all of those creatures that are exposed and and there's like a zoo type of thing there where they're all on display in cages and in houses and so forth. And we saw that. And, and again, in the millennial kingdom, prior to the great white throne judgment, if you broke the law in the kingdom, it's instant justice. It's instant judgment. It isn't delayed. You don't get a, uh, the Gentiles, by the way, you and I won't be here. Praise the Lord. <laughs> we'll be in the heavenly places. We won't be, we'll just watch all this happen. But for the Gentile... Israel, okay, let's back up. Israel the true, will be the true Israel of God. That will be the little flock, the believing remnant. They're set. The Gentile nations out there, all the flesh that's left after the second coming, they've got a decision to make. Do we believe the little flock who's out doing Matthew 28? Or do we not and take our chances and over here? So, if, again, if I saw Paul get thrown into hell, I mean, literally, break the speed limit. Speed limit's 55, he does 56. Instant judgment because the just judge is sitting on the throne. Christ is on the throne. Instant judgment goes over, drops him into hell. Boom, done. If I saw that, what would you think I would be doing? I would be at 45. Forget 55, I'd be at 54. Why? Because what am I going to do? I'm literally going to hide underneath that because I know the judgment. So there will be Gentiles in this time period who will not believe the message of the little flock. 
and yet who will also fall right under the line just so they don't get judged by breaking the law. And how you know that is in Revelation 20 out there when Satan's let loose, who does he deceive? He goes after those nations and he gets them. Well, wait a minute, I thought they were judged. No, now they are. So we've seen all of that information. In Mark 9, verse 44, what I want to do this morning with you is I want you to notice something. Mark 9, verse 44, where their worm dieth not. Well, verse 43, and if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Now, that is the Lord. It's his earthly ministry. It's Israel's program, so we're in time past. But he's talking about the future. He's literally, he's quoting Isaiah 66, verse 24. In Isaiah 66, 24, And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of men that have transgressed against me, for their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be abhorring unto all flesh. There is something that's happening here that I just want us to catch when we think about judgment, eternal judgment, hell, the lake of fire, that it ought to stop you in your tracks from time to time. Because there's some things here that we should never forget, we shouldn't miss, we should catch, we should pay attention to. Because there is a degenerative nature of sin that is applied to the souls of the lost, of man. So much so that the description is that of a, of a worm. Now, you can do the Hebrew and the Greek dance all you want. I don't, he's talking about a red maggot. That's what he's talking about. And when you come over to Revelation 21... When you think about the issue that's happening, when we talk about eternal judgment, Revelation 21, you, you need to always have in the back of your mind this issue about the worm, that maggot, that big pile of maggots there that people will go out and be able to look down at because those are the souls of men, of man, of humanity. Revelation 21, verse 8. A great verse to, to read and to have at your disposal when you are giving the gospel because of what it says. Notice this. And the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Notice that. Where do all liars go? Right there, the lake of fire, the second death. Now, that's what God's word says. And I'll be honest with you, whether you believe it or not, whether you think you can justify it away, whether you think it's going to happen or not, or whether you want to do this little dance or that, well, it doesn't matter. What does God's word say? It says that it's all, it only took one sin for Adam and Eve to get removed from the garden. It's all it took. The sin of disobedience, boom, gone. What's happening here? Look at how verse 8, the fearful and what? Unbelieving. All the liars. So the second death, the death of the soul, where God pours out his wrath, his righteous 
wrath against sin. And again, you can make it whatever you want to make it, or think it not to be, or deny it. God's Word says this, and there's nothing you can do about it, except for what? Trust Calvary. Trust the Gospel. Trust the Savior. Trust the answer. So when you're thinking about eternal judgment, and you think about what God's Word says about it, God's Word gives us a tremendous picture here about the degenerative nature of sin. And I want to show you that this morning. Come over to Revelation 9. And again, I'm not, I say this, hopefully I'm not showing you anything you don't know already. But it's something when we talk about eternal judgment, we talk about hell and the lake of fire. By the way, lake of fire, you know what it is? It's a lake of fire that burns forever. It's brimstone. He ignites it. He burns it out, opens it up. He does that. Look at Revelation 9. Just look at, notice something here about the degenerative nature of sin. Revelation 9. I didn't say Romans. If I say Romans, it was Revelation. Revelation 9.1. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. If you have a key, what, what does that indicate? There's a door. It's locked. It's not open. What does this angel do? And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air was darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. And unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. Have you ever been stung by a scorpion? I have about five or six times. It's all so much fun. Not really. Hurts. It hurts. Now, I didn't have to go to the hospital or anything like that, but it hurts. About the third time, I'm like, all right, enough of this, you know. Now we got blue lights and pink lights and purple lights, and we're out hunting scorpions. <laughs> Look at their description. Now, think about these guys, okay? Think about who's in the bottomless pit. Who's there? Satan, demonic angels, the angels that left their first estate. Now, think about those guys. Think about 1 Peter there and so forth, the angel, Jude, the angels that left their first estate. How were they originally created? They were the sons of God. They were the morning star. They were beautiful, weren't they? And yet, look at them now. Look at what's happened to them. Keep reading. Verse 4, And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, not only, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it and shall desire to die and death shall flee with them. These guys aren't messing around, are they? It's a tough deal. Now watch their description in verse 7. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. Well, when you prepare a horse into battle, what do you put on it? Armor. By the way, have you ever stepped on a scorpion? You listen for the crunch. Otherwise, you didn't kill the dude. Okay? Why? Because they've got an echo. They've got an armor on them. Spraying for them doesn't work. You've got to crunch them. You know? Keep reading. And on uh, their heads 
were as it were crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men, and they had hair as the hair of a woman, and their teeth was as the teeth of lions, and they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle, and they had tails like unto scorpions, and they were uh, and there were uh, stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. Look at these guys. Look at the degenerative form of them. They start as angels, the sons of God. The morning stars sing, Job says. And now what are they? They're down over here in some kind of decomposed, grotesque-looking thing. By the way, how you know that these aren't locusts, the animal, is the next verse. And they had a king over them which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, and in the Greek tongue hath his name Abalon. You know how you know? They had a king over them. Proverbs 30 says the locusts, the animals, have no king over them. These guys are a supernatural monsters. They're demonic. Notice the shape of, verse 7, the locusts. They're half human. They're half beast. And what I want you to see is these guys were originally beautiful creatures. But what did they do? They fell. Sin got them. And what did they look like now? Just grotesque, like, ooh. That's what's happening here. Come over to Isaiah 34. There's a degenerative nature here that's flowing through. That sin causes. Isaiah 34. It was said one time, and I can't remember who said it, that sin will smut you. It'll put a black mark on you. It'll, you know, the, 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 the Proverbs, be sure your sin will find you out. It'll nail you. It'll get you. Why? Because there's a nature about it that degenerate, that just causes trouble at every time. Look at Isaiah 34. Look, again, Battle of Armageddon. We're at Enemia and Bozrah, verse 8. For it is the days of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompense for the controversy of Zion. So this is all second coming, tribulation, the end of the 70th week of Daniel stuff. And the streams thereof shall be turned into pitch and the dust thereof into brimstone. And the land thereof shall become burning pitch and it shall not be quenched night nor day. The smoke thereof shall go up forever from generation to generation it shall lie waste none shall pass through it forever and ever you think this is this isn't going away anytime soon now watch the description from verse 11 and following but the cormorant and the bittern shall possess it the owl also and the raven shall dwell in and he shall stretch up out upon the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness they shall call the nobles thereof of the kingdom but none shall be there and all her princes shall be nothing there's no humanity here just the animals they sh verse uh, 13 and the thorn shall come up in her places nettles and brambles in the fortress thereof and it shall be a habitation of dragons and a court of owls the wild beast of the desert shall also meet with the wild beast of the island and the satyr the satyr shall cry to his fellow and the screech owl also shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest 
and there, sh and there shall the great owl make her nest and lay and hatch and gather under her shadow. There shall the vultures also be gathered, every one with her mate. You see what's happening there? There's no humanity. It's all gone down. It's all degenerate away. We looked over last time, if you just turn over there just to remind yourself. By the way, the habitation of dragons. This isn't Hollywood. Okay? You got to forget Disney when you talk about the unicorn in Scripture. The unicorn isn't some big white stallion with rainbow all over it and floating around singing, you know, la-di-da-da. No, think about a unicorn in creation. What's a one-horned animal? A rhino. Rhino. Think about that. What's going on with that rhino? He, he's not an easy guy to mess with, is he? He's a he's some strength there. He got to, you know, come on, get out of Disney and, you know, the the little kitty books. Yeah, think about this. Dragons. By the way, who is the dragon? Satan. Adversary. See, there's a spiritual thing here. Uh, oh, let's do that. Let's take a let's take a sideline real quick. Go over here with me to Matthew 13. Oh, just, you got to, man, you got to catch this. Matthew 13, it's not on your list. Now I got to find it. See, it's not on your list, so I got to find it. Uh, you going to find it now? All right, how about let's do, hang on. You got to find, you got to look at this stuff about the, the birds. Look at the birds, look at the birds. Look at, look at chapter 4 of Mark. Let's go there, Mark 4, Mark 4. Okay, Mark 4. Look at Mark 4. Look at Mark 4. We got the parable of the sower, okay? Mark 4, verse 4. And it, and, it, and it came to pass, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. Now think about the fowls. What did we just read about? Some owls and some ravens and some vultures, okay? Now, watch the explanation by the Savior. By the Lord. Verse 32. Verse 32. But when it is sown, it groweth up and becometh greater than all the herbs, okay, and shooteth out great branches, so that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. You see the fowls there? Okay. So who are the fowls? Now, where did the verse go? Isn't that the greatest thing? Isn't that crazy? Where he explains the, what the fowls are. The fowls are the devil and the demons. But man, it was right there. Isn't that crazy? That's why I don't lose my notes. Except for now. All right. Just go back to Isaiah 13. Gee whiz. The fowls in, in Scripture are the adversary. They're the devil. They're the demons. Isn't that just... Is it? No, it's Matthew 13, but let me... I got to do this. I know this is poor study, but this is just irritating. I 
thought it was there in Mark 4, right there, I thought. Well, welcome to my life. 1338. Are you in Matthew? Must be. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the field. Yeah. Okay, go back to Isaiah 34. Just think about this. Hey, yeah, let me know next week. It's in Mark. Anyway, the fouls. My point is, get back on track. Rewind. Beep, 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 beep. Delete all that. <laughs> right? My point is, is that this description in Isaiah 34, Isaiah 13, these guys didn't start that way. Think about, you're in Isaiah, look over at 20, Isaiah 27, okay? Think about Lucifer. Think about the adversary, Satan. Think about this. Isaiah 14, he is Lucifer, son of the morning. Ezekiel 28 describes him as the most beautiful creature God created in the angelic realm, in the creatures. He's got all of that, right? Isaiah 14, pride gets him. He says, I will be like the Most High, and he falls. In Job 40, describing the Antichrist, he describes him as behemoth. A behemoth is not, as Schofield says, an elephant. A behemoth is a composite being described for us in the book of the Revelation. A satyr, by the way, a satyr is a half-human, half-animal. Grotesque, not natural, doesn't look right. The adversary in Job 41 is described as Leviathan. Look at Isaiah 27, look at verse 1. In that day the Lord... With his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing servant, even Leviathan, that crooked servant, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Isn't that interesting? What has happened to Lucifer? He's the most beautiful creature. He's the cherub that, uh, that covereth. He's the anointed one. He's, he's leading creation in worship of God, the creator. He falls, sin enters in, and you know what he is? He's like a Leviathan. He's a sea monster over here. He's a dragon. Revelation 12 and those guys. Look, look back there at Revelation 12. When he calls him this, that war in heaven goes on. Re Revelation 12, verse 9, he says that great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceived the whole world. You know what he is? He's no longer the most beautiful creature in creation. He's grotesque. He's not, by the way, red with the pitchfork and devil ears and a tail. Okay? He's the great imitator. If he, if he were to walk in here this morning, you, wouldn't, you could not tell him apart. If him and the Lord Jesus Christ walked in and stood right here in front of him, you couldn't tell him apart until they speak. Because what's the Lord going to speak? Thus saith the word, and what's Satan going to say? <laughs> Well, maybe, are you sure? Okay. So what, what do you, he's a great imitator, but what is he at a core? He's, degenerate, he's, he's degenerated down. Okay. So let's think about this. For man, the second death, 
the death of the soul, the wrath of God, the judgment. The second death has to do with, first of all, the wrath of God against sin on display, executed. But then also there is this degenerate, man, I can't say it now because I'm thinking about Matthew and Mark. (laughs) The degenerative nature of sin in man's soul. That process that takes the soul back to its most basic, fundamental, simplest form. And that's what sin always does. It takes you from glory, from paradise, to the puddle. By the way, what does evolution say, just FYI? You left the puddle to paradise. Because you were a tadpole, don't you know? There's a song, okay? But no, what are you? Psalms 8 says man was crowned with honor and glory. You're the primo, and now you're this. Come over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Yeah, this, this, what sin does and the impact, and, and what I'm after this morning with you, is when we talk about eternal judgment, there is a judgment on the souls of man, of men, of humanity, men and women. And that judgment is so drastic, it is so intense because of what sin does. Look at Romans 1. Look at verse 21. Because that when they, and this is man, knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Now watch. Watch what man does here. And change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men and to birds and four-footed beasts and what? Creep. What do you do with the creepy things? You step on them, don't you? You squish them. You know why cowboy boots are, are pointed? By the way, real cowboy boots aren't pointed. The, that's the going to the dance. Why? So you can get the cockroach over in the corner and get him. Why do you got what's why what did they just do to the glory of God? They took him out of heaven and they put him down in the corner to squish him. Watch verse 32. Who, knowing the judgment of God, folks, don't ever think, don't ever let anyone ever say, I'm gonna beat the judgment of God. They, man, sinful man, knows they will stand in judgment of God. They know that. So what's this guy doing? He's wiggling, trying to get around it. Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things, the things, the list in verse 29 and 30 and 31, are worthy of death. What does man know? At his core being, at the basis of it all, he knows he's worthy of death. And that's the judgment of God. Now, he can... I, I hear people all the time. They can redefine it. They can dress it up. You know, you can dress a pig up in a dress. It's still a pig. You can wash them. I knew a guy who was a pig farmer. He washed his pigs down. You know where they ended up? Right back in the swamp, in the mire. Why? Because that's what they are. You can't. He knows something. But keep reading, though. Look at what sin's done to this guy. Not only do the same. So they're doing, verse 29, 30, 31, they're doing verse 23. But have pleasure in them that do them. 
not only the sinful man over here doing the bad, the sin, but you know what? They have a good time when you join them. And that's what they're looking to do. So the indication here is that there's a natural process of sin that's going to take that soul and degenerate it down into what Mark 9, what Isaiah 44, come over to Job 25, what Scripture describes as a worm, Job 25. Job 25, verse number 6, verse 5. Behold, even the moon and, the, and it shineth not, yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less man that is a worm, and the son of man, which is a worm. Think about that. Sin's got you. And where you're headed as lost... Is, in, is into a big pile of maggots down there, worms. By the way, where do worms live? Think about this. They live in the dirt. No light. <laughs> right? I, I think about maggots. We were hunting, and you come across the carcass, right? And what? It, we weren't hunting. We were hiking. We came across, Linda and I, we came across the carcass, and it was bloated, and what's coming out of the, the dude's ears were maggots. You know? Medicine, they used to put maggots on to eat the dead flesh off of people. It's like, hoo hoo. But that's the soul of man because of sin. Now, let's think about this. Look, in ver- look at verse 6. And the, how much less man, Job 25, 6. How much less man that is a worm? Now watch, and the son of man, which is a worm. Now, who's the son of man? Just kind of back up a little bit out of the context here. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalms 22. Let's think about this thing about the worm and about the son of man. Psalms 22. Psalms 22. And verse 1. In Psalms 22, verse 1, the Lord says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring. In Psalms 22, the first 21 verses, we see the mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ as he hangs on the cross at Calvary. As he looks out, what's going through his mind, what he's thinking, What's what he's looking at. He says, verse 2, O oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O oh, thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. You know what he said? God, God can't look on sin. He's holy. He's my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Just previous to this statement on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The next statement, he only speaks seven times. The next statement is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What's going on here, Father? I was with you. Our fathers, verse 4, trusted in thee. They trusted and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. 
Hey, man, when the fathers, when Israel asked, you answered, Father, where are you? Why aren't you answering my cry? Look at the next verse. But I am a, what? A worm. And no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All that, that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head saying, and off he goes. Look at what, why didn't the father answer the son's plea for help? Because he's a worm. And in the soul of the Lord Jesus Christ, in those three hours of darkness as he hangs there, something's happening to him. And literally what he does is he, he experiences, he suffers that degenerative process of, the, of his soul. Now, he's not a sinner. He was made to be sin. We'll see that here in just a minute. But he suffers it like unto, similar to what you and I will, were to go through. When he, on the cross, when he cries, my God, my God, why hasn't, why has thou forsaken me? Where are you? Why aren't you listening to me? Why aren't you answering my plea? What does he know's coming? He knows in the garden, he looked over there in that cup, he saw the wrath of God without mixture poured out on him. He knew what was coming. He knew he was going to pay for the, and, and pay for, the, not only just pay for the sins of man, but he was going to experience death. He was going to experience the degenerative nature of sin on that soul. He became a worm. That's tremendous, folks. He died your second death. Amen. Praise the Lord, preacher. No, no, man, that's exciting. Why? Because he did for you everything. He did for you what you could, you don't want to do. <laughs> he did it. Come over to John chapter 3. He took on your second death. The cross is more than him just being a sacrifice and substitution thing. He took on your second death. And what started this study six weeks ago was in Ephesians 4 when we talked about him descending into the lower parts of the earth and people said he's going into hell and paying for your sins on the hell and the torment side. And the answer is no, he doesn't do it there. He does it hanging on the cross. When he says, Father, it is finished, it's done. There's no, no going down there and finishing up. If that's the case, he's a liar. And we ought to might as well just close shop, sell the buildings, and go home. No, what is he? He's hanging there, and he says, it's finished. That means it is finished. <laughs> Look at John 3. I, just something here. John 3. Look at verse 14. Now watch this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. You guys know the story, right? All right. What's on the pole? A serpent. That was the stop, the plague going on within the family there of Israel, right? Even so, that great as so comparison way of studying it, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now think about this. Think about this in connection with, with him being a worm and him being lifted up. 
Jesus Christ is lifted up as who in that verse? A serpent. What did Moses lift up? You know, they, they use that now in the medical field, right? Okay? Whoop-de-doo in Subaru, right? All right? He lifted him up, but what did he lift up? He lifted up a serpent. Christ is being lifted up the same way. But who's he being lifted up as? Well, who's the serpent? The adversary, right? The guy that introduced the mess. He has become sin personified. Come over to 2 Corinthians 5. You've got to think about this. When Christ hung at at, on the cross at Calvary, it is as when Moses lifted up the serpent. When, Mo when Christ is lifted up, he becomes. He's doing more at Calvary than just our the propitiatorial act. He literally becomes sin personified so that the wrath of God can be poured out on him for all of humanity. He's the one getting it for all of humanity. 2 Corinthians 5.21. How do you know this? Further revelation from our wonderful Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he, and that's God the Father, hath made him, God the Son, to be what? Sin for us. What did he do? He lifted him up as the serpent. Here is sin on display, personify, and watch the wrath of God against it. And he nails it to his cross. He takes it out. Of, he deals with it. Who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. Man, that word made. He hath made him. To make something is to take something that's there and make it into something that it is not. Who was Jesus Christ? He's God. He's God the Son, second member of the Godhead. He is sinless. He is perfect. And what did the Father say? Son, I need you to go do this. I'm going to make you a worm. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Where did you go? You don't even listen to me. You're not returning my text messages. You're not answering my emails. What's going on here? And the Lord says, I know what it is. I'm a worm. You're holy. You can't look upon sin. And I made sin. I'm the serpent. I'm sin personified. And I did it for who? For all of man. Come over to Galatians 3. Folks, the degenerative nature of sin, the second death that you were to face, he paid for it. He experienced it. He took care of it. And that gets applied to your account the moment you trust him. The moment you say, I do. <laughs> I need you, and I do. I'm here. I trust you. I believe you. You're it. I can't do anything. You're the Savior. Look at Galatians 3. I don't know if you've ever thought about why 3.13 says this. Christ hath, Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. What's, what's Christ the curse? No. But he was what? Made. Isn't that interesting? A curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. 
He died a cursed death. He didn't just say, he, he literally suffered our second death. He took it on. Because the, and he did it in, in the condition of that degenerated soul. Because he says, I am a worm. Come over to Ephesians 2. Romans 5, verse number 8. But God commanded his love, commended his love toward us in that while we were yet, what? Sinners. You're a worm. That's where you're headed. And what did he do? He loved you and he died for you. And when he died for you and you trust him, he gives you his life. He gives you his righteousness. He gives you his identity. And now the justice of God looks out across there and he sees his righteousness. He sees perfect righteousness. He sees perfection. And he says, they're mine. They're mine. They're mine. Not because you're such a wonderful guy. You're a louse of a person. You know that, I hope. The young folks have babies. I tell them, you've got to educate the savages because that's what they are. They're heathen. You know what you are as an adult? Just a grown-up heathen, just a grown-up savage. So who do you need? You need his life. You need his righteousness. You need his identity. Look at Ephesians 2. Verse 1, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the world, I'm sorry, according to the course of this world, according to the prince, the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. That's who you were. Keep reading. Among whom also we all had our conversation in time past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. What did you deserve? You deserve the second death. You deserve to be a worm for all eternity. To be on that great big old pile of maggots down there that the believer goes out and looks down there and says, that's God's attitude about sin, and I'll have none of that. Thank you. But now watch verse 4. Because what's world 2 and 3 is the problem of humanity, isn't it? But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. The three great words today, great love, great mercy, great grace. But he can only do it because what did he do? Father, not my will, but thy will. Father, I'll go and die. Father, I'll be, be come, Send and pay the price and take their position, their place in the second death experience. If you're in Christ today, you will never experience the second death. If the Lord tarries, you'll experience death, which, by the way, is what? Absent from this and present with him. <laughs> okay, it's not bad news. But if you're not in Christ, you will experience that second death. That's why when you talk about eternal judgment, people go, ah, oh, don't talk about hell. Because it's arresting. It's startling. It makes you stop. It, gives you, it hits you right in the gut. Because it's what God's word says. 
the wrath of God against sin and that degenerative nature and process of sin, He took it all out of the way for you. He did that. Our job is to believe Him, is to trust Him, is to look at Him and say, thank you. Romans chapter 4, verse 5, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. The condition of man has never changed. You go back there and you read about what God says to Noah after the flood. RJ's paraphrase, if you will. He looks at Noah and says the condition of man will never be changed. I will never flood the earth again. But we're going to have to do something else about the condition of man. There's a scarlet thread that starts in the garden and runs all the way through, and, it's, and it leads to Calvary. And he says, there it is. And what God has said to man across the ages, across the dispensations, is believe me. That's all I'm asking. Just believe me. Just trust me. You don't have to do anything but trust me. Your Bible is a wonderful book. It, doesn't, it never hides the sins of its heroes. Just look at King David. But you know what, though? When King David made a mistake, you know where he went? He went right over to the Word of God. He went right to Nathan. He went right where he's supposed to go and said, I messed up. I've sinned. What does the Word of God say i got to do? And that's why Paul in Romans 4 says, Blessed is the man in whom the Lord will not impute iniquity, will not impute sin. And that comes right out of Psalms, a Psalm of David. Because you know what Nathan said? You're the man. You're guilty. And David goes, Yes, I am. What do I do? And Nathan says, Do this. And David did it. And God forgave him. David didn't understand why God forgave him. You know what the penalty of murder was under the law? Death. He's the king. He should have been killed for not only murder but adultery. And yet he went and did what God, and you know what God requires? That heart of faith. That's all he requires. And you just say, hey, I need you. <laughs> I need a savior, and I believe you. I believe you did it. You don't have to walk the aisle. You don't have to, we don't have a baptismal. We got a bathtub over there if you need, but we, you don't have to do anything. There's no religious activity at all. Faith is a private issue. Faith sits right inside of your heart, and you just trust him. For those of us that are in Christ, you know what we have the privilege to do? Preach this and share it with people. Because the world's condition requires it. That's why we are ambassadors for Christ. We go into this world, this, this Christ-denying, unworthy, undeserving world, and you know what we say? Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Could you imagine what people would... Grace and peace? What's wrong with you? How can you say that? Because Christ died for all of mankind. And he experienced for you. So even though we kind of draw up our little study on eternal judgment, don't miss 
what it's all about. And that's the souls of men. And that battle on the cross between the adversary and the Savior is for your soul and for the souls of men. Now, again, you may not believe it. You may say, oh, you're full of, you know, you're just being a blowhard, blah, blah, blah. Uh-uh. God's Word says it. Okay? And I can forget where a verse is or can't find it real quick. That's because I'm a frail human being. <laughs> but at the same time, this is what it is. Okay? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. And above all, Lord, we thank you for who, we, who you've made us in your Son. We thank you for that. As we think about these things and we look into them a little deeper on our own, we would just rejoice in your grace, rejoice in your mercy, rejoice in your long-suffering, and in the end, give you thanks for that and be thankful and we'll do all of that for your honor and for your glory in your name we pray amen